passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning. Uh, It is uh, good to be with you this morning as we uh, gather around God's Word. We'll be in in 1 Samuel chapter 4 again this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. Um, And as you're turning there, I I just want to share a little bit, kind of framing as I've thought of this passage and and what the significance of 12 through 22 are about. About this time, um, about 15 years ago, uh, I had a chance to spend a couple weeks in rural Guatemala, um, was serving at a church there, helping them with a few things. And, and on our way back to the airport in Guatemala City, we actually stopped in Antigua. And uh, Antigua is the, the former capital of the Spanish colony of, of Guatemala uh, from the 1500s to um, the 1700s. And uh, it was abandoned in 1776. And over the last 50, 60, 70 years or so, it's experienced this renaissance. And part of the reason why all of these people are now moving to Antigua is because of the beautiful ruins of this uh, nearly 500-year-old city. And actually, while we were in Antigua, we had the chance to stop by uh, San Jose Cathedral. This is a cathedral that was destroyed by an earthquake in 1773. That was the earthquake that actually uh, led to the abandonment of, of the city of Antigua. And as we're walking through the, the ruins of this cathedral, um, I, there, were, there were two things that, that um, just were, were laid upon me. As I was walking through this, one is just, this is incredibly beautiful. Uh, the architecture here, the, uh, the, the contrast between what once was and where it now stands was just, it was, it was beautiful. But I think even more than, than beauty, there was this reverent silence as we were walking through the ruins of this cathedral, and I think the reason for that reverent silence is because those ruins told a story. They told a story of this tragedy that took place several hundred years ago, and here was something that was once great, once majestic, and and yet now it's been ruined by tragedy. And as I think about ruins, I think that's what all ruins really do and why they're so attractive to people is because while they're beautiful, they also, they tell this story about tragedy and and they they remain as as oftentimes a monument to tragedy. And they can serve as a warning sometimes, they can serve as a lesson for us of, of what will happen if we do not pay attention. Now, in the English language, the word ruin or ruins doesn't just refer to something we can look at. Sometimes it refers to something that we experience as well. And so sometimes when we experience hardship or pain, it may feel like our lives are left in ruins. When we lose a loved one, when our hopes go unfulfilled and we are left disappointed, we experience a thousand different types of tragedy Our lives feel like they have been ruined and they are left in ruins. And we might ask ourselves, why? Why does God allow his people to feel and experience ruin? And that's a question that the people of God have asked throughout the ages. Really, it's it's covered in a number of different books in the Bible. They're attempting to answer this question, why does God allow me to experience hardship? to experience suffering, to experience ruin. 
And the thing is, this is a very, very complex question. It doesn't have a one-size-fits-all answer. It feels, if you feel like you are living a ruined life, then almost certainly the, the reason what God, is, or what God is doing in your life is probably going to be different than, than other people. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. That's why the Bible gives us a number of different reasons of why he might allow ruin in our lives. Because God is doing something in your life. This morning's passage actually gives us one possible answer. And I want to just focus on that word possible. Of what God might be doing in your life when you experience hardship, when you experience suffering, when it feels like your life is falling apart. What might God be doing in your life? 1 Samuel 4 gives us a glimpse of what that might be. Let's go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he brought the news answered. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for he was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and was about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured. Would you pray with me? Father, as, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would enable us to respond to your written word with greater faith, with greater trust in you, as we consider what you were doing some 3,000 years ago in this text, we ask that you would also work in a similar way this morning in our hearts. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless your people as we sit under it. God, help us to be a people who sit under your word, not over it, and that we would do so for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, you probably noticed as we were reading through that text that our, our text breaks apart into to two, um, two parts. And I want us to just look at both parts in turn and then to ask the question, what does this text mean for us today? So let's look at the first part. The, the text opens with the death of Eli in verses 12 through 18. This passage comes immediately on the heels of what we looked at last week at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 4. And and I want to just remind ourselves of what we saw in verses 1 through 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel 4 opens with the story of the people of God, uh, the Israelites, at war with the Philistines. And these two nations, they, they meet in battle and they meet somewhere in between these two villages. They meet between Aphek and Ebenezer. And, and that's about 20 miles west of the capital of Israel at that time, Shiloh. And that will come into play here in a moment. And they meet together in battle. And the people of Israel are defeated. And they retreat back to their camp in Ebenezer to regroup. And, and they begin to ask this question of, okay, why did God have his hand against us in battle? Why were we defeated uh, when we went to battle with the Philistines. And rather than concluding, uh, well, they, they, there must be something in our own hearts or that we are living sinful lives, they say, hey, I got it. The reason why God didn't bless us in battle is because we didn't have the ark. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament to this point, we actually can see, if you look at Joshua, the book of Joshua, in the conquest of the lands, many times when the people of Israel go to battle, they are led by the ark. And so the people of God, as they are being defeated by the Philistines, they conclude, hey, this worked in the past, and we didn't do it, and it didn't work for us when we didn't do it, so let's go ahead and do what we have always done. And so they go on this 20-mile journey back to Shiloh. Someone grabs the ark, and the rest of the story, verses 1 through 11, tell us that did not work. The people of Israel were routed, and the ark was captured. And last week we focused on the, the why. Why did God allow his people to be defeated? More, more accurately, according to the text, why did God defeat his people through the Philistines? And we saw that one of the reasons why is because it was a form of judgment upon the people of Israel for their sin. Rather than doing the hard work of repentance, rather than coming before the presence of God with this heart of of contrition for the things that they had done wrong, they decide instead, well, we're going to try to control God, and we're going to use the ark as the key to controlling God. In other words, what we saw last week is that they choose the easy path of, of superstition rather than the hard path of obedience. One pastor describes and just sums this up so well when he says this, their assumption is this, If we bring the ark into battle, the Lord will be forced to deliver us to protect his honor. Should something happen to the ark, it would make God the loser. And naturally, God would not allow that to happen. And so he will save us now because his honor's at stake. This is their mindset when they approach this battle with the Philistines. And of course, as we saw last week, God will not be coerced to do our will. God will not be controlled by us. God is God. We are not. And as such, he will do his will. He will not do our will. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't delight to hear our prayers. God doesn't delight to hear the desires of our heart. But 
If we think that church attendance or regular prayer or regular Bible reading or any number of things is going to put God into our debt, all the while we're living a life that is not pleasing to God, as we saw last week, sometimes God lovingly allows judgment and discipline to come upon us. That's the case for the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 12 where we see the rest of the fallout from the battle. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh in the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. So the scene shifts from battle to about 20 miles away to, to the capital where Shiloh is. Eli is nervously sitting by the side of the road. He's waiting for news of this battle. And if you've been with us in 1 Samuel so far, you probably have seen uh, enough of Eli to know what type of person he is like. Eli is the high priest at this time. He's the de facto leader of God's people during this age, and he's a complex character. We see that he seems to genuinely care for God. He seems to genuinely care for for the people of God, even the commands of God, and yet at the same time, that doesn't result in action. Eli is a very weak-willed person. He refuses to address the sins of his sons beyond just his passing. Boys, I don't know if this is such a good idea how you are living your lives. And God pronounces judgment upon Eli and his family because of this. God doesn't consider Eli guiltless because he shirks his responsibility. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29. Why, the, why then do you, Eli, scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And why do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? The picture that we get of Eli in the first four chapters of 1 Samuel is an unflattering one. He is utterly passive. If you read these chapters, you'll notice that every single time that he appears, he is either sitting down or lying down. He has gone fully blind. As we saw a couple weeks ago, this is not only a statement of his physical sight, but it's also a statement about his spiritual state. He's unable to see the things of God. He's unable to lead the people of God. Actually, what we're going to see in this passage is he's described as very heavy, and the text seems to indicate that one of the reasons why he allowed his sons to get away with stealing food from the offerings offered to God is because he delighted to eat the choice parts of the food. Still, when we open this passage, we see that he is sitting by the side of the road and he's full of anxiety about the ark. And that's telling. Because on, on, on the positive side, it tells us or shows us that, that he's actually concerned about the ark. That's his greatest concern. It's not about his sons. It's not about whether the people of Israel will be victorious over the Philistines. He's, he's concerned about the ark. That's a good thing. And yet at the same time, it shows us how passive he is. He knows, the text implies that he knows that it was wrong to bring the ark to Ebenezer, that that wasn't the problem of the people of Israel, and yet he allows it to happen anyway. 
Eli is completely and utterly passive. And just an aside from this text, Eli is a warning to all of us. It is so easy to be passive. It is so easy to be timid. It is so easy to know the good things that we should do and yet refuse to actually do them. We would do well to heed the warning of Eli from this passage. In any case, this man, he runs from the battle. That's an impressive feat. He runs uphill 20 miles, and he brings this message of destruction. He's dressed for mourning. His clothes are torn. He's got dirt on his head. And yet, because Eli can't see, he doesn't catch the news. And so he calls this man to bring him the news, and that's where we pick up in verse 16. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today, and he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel 40 years. One of the things that we'll see as we work our way through 1 Samuel, maybe you've already seen this as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, is um, 1 Samuel is, is laden with irony. It's written with irony. There's actually a lot of dark humor as well in 1 Samuel. And, and the author of 1 Samuel uses that in order to prove a point. And that's what we see here with Eli. We, we see that he is incredibly inept, and, and here's, here's this man. He's the leader of Israel. He's sitting by the side of the road. He's waiting for news to come from the battle, and when the runner arrives, he doesn't stop and talk to Eli. He just ignores him, runs right past him, goes to the middle of the city to tell everyone else. This is the state of the leader of God's people. And so Eli has to flag him down and says, hey, come back. I want, I want to hear what happened. And, and Eli gets his attention, and, and what does the messenger say? Well, the messenger says, I fled from battle today. Who flees from battle? Winners or losers? It's not the winners. It's the one who's defeated. And yet Eli doesn't catch that. He says, well, how did it go? You fled from battle. How, how did it go. He asks for this fuller description, and so the man goes into this detailed description. He lists four events that just build on one another, one after the other, getting worse and worse and worse. First, he says, Israel was defeated or fled before the Philistines. Second, even worse, it wasn't just a, a defeat. The defeat was great. We saw in verse 11 that the people of God were actually scattered everyone to their home. They didn't re regroup. Third thing he sees is that your sons are dead. And then fourth and worst of all, the ark has been captured. Now, I don't think it's reading into this text to say or suggest that Eli probably anticipated numbers one, two, and three. This is why he's nervously waiting on the side of the road in verse 13. I think that the text is saying that Eli knows the real reason why Israel was defeated earlier in chapter 4, and it's not because they didn't have the ark. Eli knows it was because of their sin. And, so, and he also knows about these two prophecies about his son, about his sons. We saw in, in chapter 2, not only that his sons would die, but they would die on the same day as a sign of God's judgment upon his family. 
So Eli has this, has this inkling of understanding of, of what could happen, and yet does that lead him into action? No, of course not. He's, he's passive. He knows the good he should do, and yet he does not do it. Now, we can even say he might even be worried about the possibility of the ark being captured. That's why he has this anxiety about the ark in verse 13. And yet, he probably never in a million years would have imagined that God would actually let the ark fall into the hands of his enemies. Because when he hears the news of the ark being captured, he is so distraught that he falls off of his chair, lands on his neck, and dies. It is hard for us to grasp how devastating the capture of the ark would have been for the people of God of Israel. We saw last week that the ark is the center of their worship. It represented the, the special relationship that God has with his people. In essence, it symbolized their very connection with God. And now the ark is gone. The ark is, has been captured and that puts everything into jeopardy. And it leaves a number of questions. Is God really who he says he is? Is God really actually powerful? Or is Dagon, the chief god of the Philistines, is he stronger than our God? Has God abandoned us? And in virtually all of this is going through Eli's mind because Eli has lost everything he holds dear. And he dies. Verse 18 ends on a sobering, or in a sobering way. We're told that Eli has judged Israel for 40 years. I think this line uh, intentionally draws us back to the time of the judges, the end of the book of Judges, because Eli, just like all of the other judges in the book of Judges, is a man who is very flawed. That God might have used him, and yet he is very flawed. He's a broken leader who is has mixed in his approach to God. And it shows us our desperate need for the true king. Eli's rule as a judge may as well be summed up by the last verse of the book of Judges. We've looked at this a number of times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the first half of this story is the story of the death of Eli. The second half is the birth of his grandson, Ichabod. The news of the ark's capture is so devastating that not only does it lead to the death of Eli, it actually leads to the death of his daughter-in-law as well. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending said to her, Do not be afraid. For you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. If we read these verses, I, I'm, I'm left wondering what this woman was like. Was she a follower of the Lord, unlike her husband Phineas? Was this a woman who's trapped in this arranged marriage with this evil man? Or, or was she like her husband? Did she have a similar heart as her husband that never actually believed that God would follow through on the promise of judgment that he had made? We have no idea, of course, but it is interesting to note that the, the first thing that happens to her when she hears and leads to her eventual death is the destruction or the capture of the ark. Not the death of her father-in-law, 
not even the death of her husband, but the ark. And when she names her son, she names her son off of the loss of the ark. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Names regularly play an important role in the Old Testament, especially when we're given the the definition or the reason why for the name. That's what we see here with Eli's daughter-in-law. She's faced with death, and she names her son Ichabod, which means something like no glory or where is the glory. And the specific meaning isn't important because the text actually tells us why she does this in verses 21 and 22. She gives her sons this name because the ark has been captured. And because the ark has been captured, she says the glory of God has departed as well. And for all of his life, her son will be a testament to one of the lowest points in Israel's history. That the ark is gone and now the glory has departed. I mentioned a couple moments ago that one of the things that we see over and over in 1 Samuel is this irony. We, we see a lot of play on words when it comes to the book of 1 Samuel. And the entire narrative of Eli is building actually to this moment. It comes to a head with the naming of Eli's grandson, Ichabod. Now the word for glory in Hebrew is this word kavod. Can you guys say that with me? Kavod, all right? You're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew this morning. Kavod. That's the word for glory. And then there's this word for weight or heavy that is kavod, all right? So say that, kavod. All right, well done. I don't normally make you talk to me, and you're actually doing it. So, all right, so we have kavod glory and kavod or kavod, which is heavy or weight. And throughout this narrative, we see that Eli and his sons, we, they, they are regularly described as heavy, or kaved or kavod. And, and Eli is this man who gives a great deal of weight, kaved, to his sons, rather than to the glory, the kavod, of God. So Eli and his sons don't consider God to be worthy of glory, and they live their lives accordingly, and they gorge themselves on food. And they only consider themselves worthy of glory. And yet we get to the end of the story and we see that that God hasn't been silent. God actually does have an opinion on those who would consider him less glorious than their own desires. God has an opinion on those who would give less weight to himself than to other things. And so the glory departs. And as we will soon see, Israel is left in shambles. And yet, even though Israel is left in shambles, this text doesn't want us to conclude that God is left in shambles. God is powerless. This moment, the capture of the ark, externally, it looks like an awful defeat not just for the people of God, but for God himself. How could it not be? We see in chapter 4, from an outsider's perspective, that the ark has been defeated, God has been defeated by this pagan God of the Philistines. 
And yet, as we look at it through the lens of 1 Samuel chapter 4, we, we see that this message is actually telling us something different. This story about Ichabod here at the end is telling us something different. That this moment that actually looks like defeat this day is where God protects his honor. That God is so sick of the family of Eli continuing to treat him as though he is nothing because they are so focused on their own glory rather than the glory of God that at long last the glory and the majesty of God that they've held in so little esteem, it's departing. It it leaves. And God's word through the prophet in chapter 2 is words that are affirmed through Samuel in chapter 3. They are now fulfilled. In the final assessment, this chapter is saying that God is not defeated, but God is glorious. And the people of Israel have to learn that lesson. And so the ark departs. The glory of God departs from the people of Israel. And that's the frame of mind that I want us to just consider briefly. What does this mean? What does this mean for us today? This is not just something that took place 3,000 years ago that has nothing to do with us, but, but what is the lesson of Shiloh? And I'm calling this the lesson of Shiloh because even though 1 Samuel doesn't tell us explicitly, we know from the rest of the Old Testament that that defeat at Aphek that, that the people of Israel experienced in chapter 4 leads to the destruction of Shiloh. That the center of worship for the people of God, the capital, the tabernacle, is destroyed in this moment. The ark is captured in in chapter 5, and then when it's returned in chapter 6, it isn't brought back to Shiloh. It's because Shiloh is destroyed. Instead, it's brought to Kiriath-Jerim. Shiloh is left in ruins. Israel's capital, the, the center of worship here. And 1 Samuel chapter 4 is telling us about the ruin of Shiloh until the exile a few centuries later. This is the worst moment in the history of God's people because the ark has been captured, the tabernacle has been destroyed. So what can we learn from this passage? Old Testament gives us a bit of an answer. There are two other passages in the Old Testament. Look back to this moment. Look back to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel and and help us understand what God is doing here. That's what we see in Psalm 78 and Jeremiah 7. Psalm 78, God asks the question or answers the question, why did God allow this to happen? And Jeremiah 7 answers the question, what does God want us to learn? So let's look at both of those questions briefly. First, why did God allow this to happen. Psalm 78, picking up in verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. And delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. You can catch the echoes here of 1 Samuel, can't you? Notice what it says. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. He delivered his power to captivity. His glory into the hand of a foe. That's clearly referencing the ark. 
Their priests fell by the sword in reference to the prophecy of 1 Samuel chapter 2. There's even this mention of widows here, just like Phineas's wife. But Psalm 78 isn't just a historical description saying, well, this is what happened. Far more importantly, it's telling us why Shiloh was destroyed. To put it very simply, God destroyed Shiloh because of the sins of his people. Shiloh was supposed to be this place where God's people met with him and God received glory from his people. It was supposed to be this center of worship that encompassed all of life, this life of obedience. And yet when we look at at Psalm 78, we see that instead of all that, Shiloh is the center of testing God in verse 56. It's a center of rebellion against God in 56. At Shiloh, people refuse to keep God's commandments in verse 56. Rather than following God, they turn away from God in verse 57. They keep up the rituals, but these are nothing more than a deceit in verse 57. Shiloh isn't the center of worship of the true God. It's the heart of idolatry in verse 58. In essence, Shiloh, this place that is supposed to to be the center of communion with God, of a relationship with God, instead came to stand for all the things that God hates. And Psalm 78 is clear. It's very clear. This is what God does to his people when they persist in sin when they persist in idolatry, when they refuse to keep his commandments, when they rebel against his lordship by seating themselves on the throne of their lives. That's how Psalm 78 begins. It says, this is a warning for you. I want you to pay attention. Make sure that you teach this to your children. Learn the lesson of history of God's people so that you do not make the same mistakes. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. The ruins of Shiloh are supposed to be this gift of grace from God to the people of God because it's a warning to everyone who comes after, including ourselves, about how seriously God takes his glory and how seriously we must also take his glory. And honestly, that's the heart of of Jeremiah 7 as well, how seriously God takes his glory. Several centuries after this moment, the people of Israel, they have returned to the same disobedience, the same idolatry. It's so prevalent in Shiloh's day. Just as in Eli's day, so also in Jeremiah's day. I'm going to go ahead and just read the text, starting in verse 8. Jeremiah says this to the people of God, Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I might my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did 
to Shiloh. So here we see in Jeremiah's day, the people are using the temple just as the people of of Eli's day were in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They're living these lives of utter disobedience, deceit, theft, murder, adultery, lying, idolatry, and more. And then they come to the temple and act like nothing is wrong, that God is actually pleased with them because they at least showed up for worship. And God says through Jeremiah, you really think that I'm okay with that? You really think that I'm impressed with this? Go look at at Shiloh. Go look at where the ruins stand and see what I think about it when people act in this way. Go see what happens when people time after time after time refuse to listen to me when I speak to them. The ruins of Shiloh are a testament to how seriously I take the sin of my people. And really, that's the lesson of Shiloh. It's a message about how seriously God takes his glory. It's about how much he cares about his fame. It's about how much he refuses to be used by people, even his own people, to soothe the guilty conscience rather than following him in obedience. And Jeremiah 7 says, Go look at Shiloh, go look at the ruins. Go look at this place of destruction, and you'll see how seriously I take my glory. I began our time this morning by talking about ruin, especially when it feels like our lives are left in ruins. I'm asking the question, what is, what is God doing in those moments Does this passage have an answer for us? In one sense, it, it's, it's clear from this text that God allows ruin in our lives when we persist in sin. It's a, it's a gift, honestly. It's not a sign of judgment as much as it is a gift to get us to return to him. And yet, I think there's another, probably even more foundational truth from this passage that we have to grasp hold of this morning. Why did God ruin Shiloh? Yes, it's because of the sin of his people, but that's the cause. It's not the purpose. God has a purpose that's different than the cause here for why Shiloh is left in ruins. And it's not because it's an act of judgment. It's because it's an act of grace. God removes Shiloh from his people to teach his people their dependence upon him, not upon the systems that they have built up and begin to trust in. Here we see this picture of a people who have strayed from God and more than anything, they need to be reminded of their need for God. They need to be reminded of their need to to give God glory. And God alone. And I want us to ask, might that be true of us as well? Even when we haven't strayed, even when we haven't wandered, even if we're not following the picture of the people of Israel and all those sins that are listed in Psalm 78, all of those sins that are listed in Jeremiah chapter 7. That even if we are the righteous sufferer like Job, 
Might God be using affliction and hardship and pain and ruin in your life to give you more of himself? That's the message that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. God might allow ruin in your life to grow your dependence upon him. God might allow you to experience hardship and ruin to grow your dependence upon God. That's what God does at Shiloh. Go back to verse 21. You look at verse 21, the words of Phineas' wife. I'm going to read this, but rather than reading the words in the ESV, I want us to use a translation in the footnotes, which I think is a little more wooden, but I think it gets at the heart of what God is saying here, the hope of this passage, how this is a passage, not a judgment, but a passage that is about grace. It says this, literally, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has gone into exile out of Israel. This word depart here in verse 21 and again used in verse 22 is literally the word exile. It's not depart, it's exile. And exile, among other things, implies return. That one day, God's glory, which is now in exile, will return. And the words here that that she speaks are, are words of suffering and mourning but they're tinged with this expectant hope that God will not forget his people. I've mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 28 a number of times as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, and that's because it's so important for understanding 1 Samuel, it's so important for understanding Old Testament history as a whole. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we are given a list of blessings if the people of God are obedient to God and a list of curses if the people of God are disobedient to the covenant. And these, these curses that will come are promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28 build and get worse and worse and worse. And the curse that, that culminates persistent rebellion of God's people is found in, in verse 64. I want to start by reading verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, in verse 64, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to another. So the culmination of the curse of if God's people are disobedient to God, the culmination of the curse is that God will give them exile. That they will be scattered out of the land. That God is going to scatter them among the nations. According to verse 64, the the worst curse for disobedience to God is exile. And then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we see persistent rebellion of God's people against God. And what is the result of their unfaithfulness to God? It's exile. But they aren't the ones who are exiled. 
God is the one who goes into exile. The glory of God goes into exile for the sin of the people. And it might be too much to say that, that God is, is declare, it's declaring that God is, is bearing the, the, the curse of the, the punishment of Israel's persistent sin. And yet God does that elsewhere. God is in the business of bearing the punishments of people's unfaithfulness, uh, uh, people's persistent sin, and not pouring it out on people, the punishment for their sin, but instead bearing that punishment upon himself. That's why we see in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you feel like your life is in ruins, is it possible that that is not a form of judgment, but is instead a gift of grace? Might God be using your life to to grow your dependence upon him? When Shiloh stands in ruins, it is so easy to see it as a declaration of judgment and punishment. But what if God bore the curse of our sin and our disobedience on the tree and is therefore using your ruins not as a, not as a punishment, but as a gift of grace, hard, gut-wrenching, painful grace, but grace so that you might learn to love him even more, to lean on him even more, to depend on him even more. God might allow ruin in your life to grow your dependence upon him. What is God doing in your life? Let's pray. Father, as we consider this text, we I guess I should just say I I look at Psalm 78 and all of the things the people of Israel were guilty of and Jeremiah chapter 7, and all the things the people of Israel were guilty of. And all too often I see a similar heart within myself. And God, I I know that I am deserving of judgment, of the curse of disobedience, It is so amazing that you bore that curse so that even hardship can be a gift of grace. God, I ask that you would help each of us, especially when we are living a life that feels ruined. Help us to see that 
as an opportunity to run to you, to not become embittered with you, but to lean on you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.